Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the aftermath of COP. And you ask us, why should I fill in timesheets for my carer's allowance when MPs don't have to do the same for their second jobs? So it feels like a hell of a lot has been happening in British politics since then, but we're actually only recording, you know, a short period after the COP negotiations and the last minute changes to the agreement. Alok Sharma, the COP minister, uh, was visibly sort of crying and and tearful and apologised to delegates when he uh, announced what they decided, which was to phase down the use of coal rather than phase it out. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment, but I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Boris Johnson claimed it as a triumph. Stephen, do you think COP was a failure, or what, what did they achieve? The answer is always a bit of both, right? Without wanting to sound incredibly sort of depressive about it, the last 25 were not particularly successful and therefore there was not much reason to suppose that the 26th would break that pattern. But look, I think actually in terms of like the challenge, if you are an environmental campaign in a democracy, for the most part, COP26 means you can move from going, will you please make this promise to, okay, you need to honour this promise. It is the first time since 1997 that there's been an international agreement in any language on coal. The flip side is, is does in practice phase down actually just mean keep using it at the same rate? Now, to let people behind the curtain, one of the things I, I pitched for my column this week was precisely on this theme, but uh, instead I was asked to do to, to do more sleeves. And it's, you know, a brilliant, engaging column on sleeves and email <laughs> and, you know, read it in all good news days now. But... Ultimately, the difference in answers is that Alok Sharma is someone who, um, you know, although he has a sense of humour and he can be quite fun, etc., etc., he's someone who his default setting is, you know, I'm a competent administrator who, you know, deeply engaged in this policy and is upset that we've fallen short on coal. Yeah. Boris Johnson's default setting is to go, you know, like, we're great, you're awesome, yeah, well done, everybody. So they were always, I think, going to respond to whatever emerged from COP26 in quite different ways tonally. For most environmental campaigning uh, and indeed of the most sort of 
high profile, you know, the stuff which you know people tend to talk about in the discourse, whether it's Insulate Britain or Extinction mm. Rebellion, or indeed, you know, just in a lot of lot of journalism. And indeed, you know, I, I say this and I think, you know, eagle eyed listeners will point out the large number of slightly macabre jokes I've made on this podcast over the years about us all dying in the climate wars. But all of the evidence is that you are better off saying, look how much progress we've made, look how far we still have to go, it'll be great. I think the positive thing is, I think broadly, the countries which wanted phase out in this document will act as if phase out is in this document. The countries which wanted phase down will act as if neither the word phase nor the word down is anywhere near it. They'll um, act unfazed. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that that is still a net positive. If you look at, say, um, what's happening with oil money in the markets, right, even as the energy price is going up and there is therefore clearly market demand for oil, investors just don't buy it. People in oil fortunes talk about this as their last hurrah. I think it is certainly possible that Boris Johnson's account of things does actually turn out to be I want to stay true, but I think correct is actually a more accurate use of language. It turns out to be incidentally correct, which is that you do therefore get more investment in alternate energies. Naftali Bennett's, I think, uh, optimistic and slightly eccentric idea of being like, we'll use all of our technological innovation and has you know, made Israel the country with more unicorns per head. Uh, that's a type of, of company. Uh, yeah, more unicorns per head than, than anywhere else in the world to solve climate change. I think there is an optimistic read where that does all happen. However, of course, there is a much more pessimistic read, which is that this does mean that you enter a world of two Celsius, which, yes, only, in heavy scare quotes, renders the world uninhabitable for one billion people. But, of course, as we've already seen, how much, much smaller displacements of people cause quite big disruptions to um, the politics of democracies and autocracies alike. So I think, although we should avoid apocalyptic language because the evidence is it doesn't work at persuading people to take the necessary action. I do think we also shouldn't be um, naive about just how much more difficult everything becomes for everyone, regardless of whether or not, because basically for every Celsius, one billion more people get displaced or drowned. Every one billion does make the rest of politics much more fraught, much more difficult. And I think it's actually, look, the other, po- the really positive thing about COP, right, what is the other big existential threat to the survival of the human race at the moment? It is the China and the United States blunder into a prolonged hot war in which there is nuclear exchange through a lack of communication. What was a really positive thing that happened at COP? A a US-China joint statement on methane emissions. We've then seen another Biden-Xi bilateral in which they've talked about their nuclear arsenals. So I think actually there were lots of positive things from this COP, while there also being many things that were disappointing about it. Mm. How do you think... It's playing with the critics within the Conservative Party of the net zero agenda, looking more towards the UK's sort of domestic commitment towards its net zero strategy and climate change. From a domestic political perspective, what Boris Johnson needed, right, was he needed to be able to say, we've moved India to having a commitment, we've moved China to having a commitment. And he got that. Again, there is an open argument about to what extent that commitment will be seriously honoured, particularly on coal. But it exists, it's there, it makes the politics of that, yeah, a bit easier. At the end of the interesting thing is, as you know, as our kind of, you know, social policies are, there is then this big gap in terms of the net zero policy, in terms of willingness to pay for it centrally, willingness to engage with what that means for universal credit, willingness to engage with what that means for fuel poverty, etc, etc. Yeah, in many ways, right, the biggest COP26 announcement from a UK politics 
perspective, two things which happened before and after it, the relatively small amount of money for new boilers announced in Rishi Sunak's budget and the the axe that has been taken to active travel. Well, okay, TfL has basically said, look, unless the central government ponies up more CapEx money, which I think we all know they're not going to, we're going to have to pause our active travel schemes you know no more new cycle superhighways, no more step-free access which of course the more step-free access you have the more people with mobility issues can use public transport rather than using cars taxis and, and whatnot so i think yeah the interesting question here is like, okay yeah it's great to like go away get people to make these statements including countries who i think many people did not think would be persuaded to sign up to anything at this conference but like what's the point if like yeah you aren't doing the low-hanging fruit of just building more train lines here in the UK. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that was always the argument, you know, from the from the conservative sceptics about net zero as well. If you don't have countries like China on board, then what's the point of us all sacrificing our lifestyles and in inverted commas and, you know, paying all of this money for, for this kind of transition? And I think COP and the results of it and, and the optics of it did, I think, take some of the sting away from that argument. But then really it, it puts the spotlight back on the government in terms of how serious it is about its commitments. I mean, they went into hosting COP having just announced scrapping air passenger duty on short haul flights. Conservative MPs had just voted to allow water companies to carry on um, dumping sewage into our rivers and, and beaches, which we discussed with David Gork could be a, a, a political issue for, for MPs in certain parts of the country. You have the ongoing issues, you know, over the coal mine in Cumbria and the Cambo oil plant. And and then, as you say, the more day-to-day debates about how much should be spent on rail. I mean, we've got the integrated rail review coming out today, so we won't anticipate it too much, but it's clear that H. Two plans have been watered down, and that is because, as you said, you know, Rishi Sunak's limits on capital expenditure, which will not only impact rail but also active travel, cycling, and pedestrian infrastructure as well. So, you, you have all of these stories on the sidelines that make you question whether or not the political barriers are just too great for the government to really sort of achieve a kind of revolution. On you know, because I, I do. I do buy that this is a subject very close to Boris Johnson's heart. I mean, it is something that he, he's been committed to long since his days as London mayor. But are the obstacles too great in terms of the Treasury's sort of restrictions and the politics within the Conservative Party? Boris Johnson was proactive travel when he thought that climate change wasn't real. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it is actually, in many ways, the only consistent policy through line from his yeah. whole career. And yet... It's still essentially, you know, unless something very big happens, going to be sacrificed on the altar of, you know, their weird standoff with TfL. Like LTNs are great as far as they go, but they are ultimately a, an urban solution. They don't help increase the number of people cycling in rural and sem- semi-rural settings. I was talking to you know, a senior conservative who's really into both active travel and the climate stuff, and they said, well, look, part of our mission is globally... Most parties of the centre-right don't believe that you can do this stuff and, A, maintain an office, but also kind of keep the broad edifice of centre-right economics and government uh, on the road. And they said, I believe you can. And they said, but one of the problems is, they said, is sometimes I think some of the people who think you can't are in the Treasury. Because I just don't think you can justify the 3% limit on capital expenditure at this moment. I think, you know, going forward, you can see the argument for it. But... Seeing as in order to keep below two Celsius rise uh, alive, you need to do quite a lot of your decarbonisation quite rapidly now. It actually now is a time that it makes sense to have 
more infrastructure, particularly on active travel, something which is very dear to the Prime Minister's heart. But I suspect actually the real problem in the internal politics is one of the reasons why chancellors love fiscal rules is it's a way to control the department. When you have a prime minister who is regarded by most people as, you know, never having met an infrastructure project and he didn't say yes to, one of the reasons for that very tight infrastructure limit, if you're Rishi Sunak, is it's your way of, like, trying to keep your spendthrift prime minister on something resembling the straight and narrow. But it does create huge problems for the ability to meet these climate targets. To move this away from the sort of immediate existential climate stuff, right, ultimately, climate change is a huge fiscal risk. And... The other sort of huge fiscal problem the UK has historically had is none of our core cities, other than London, of course, are that productive compared to their European peers. And if you were able to make Manchester's GBA per head as, you know, as large as London's, uh, or even, you know, to just close the gap between it and, you know, a major German city, well, then suddenly all of the difficult tax decisions that Rishi Sunak had to make in order to keep his fiscal rules all kind of evaporate. And yeah, I think a reason to be pessimistic about this is is even when it's kind of a a virtuous circle for the government, they still drift into this, oh, no, you know, with a party of motorists, oh, with a party of NIMBYs, oh, let's, yeah, like, let's do the kind of comfort zone stuff. I mean, I know we've said this before, but I do find it a bit ridiculous, right? And we're in week three of people going, oh, well, it's fine. The government's position isn't that bad for midterm. It's like, yeah, it's because usually in midterm governments are like doing controversial things to change the country. And the controversial thing that the government has done is try and fail to save Owen Patterson's um, <laughs> parliamentary career. Yeah. Yeah. And just on the social justice angle, I do think it is worrying the way that they have approached other policy areas in terms of what it means for, for the costs of people of, for changing their boilers or for driving an electric car and all of these lifestyle changes that are going to be necessary really fast. So, for example, the cladding crisis, for example, allowing that most of the costs to fall on the, sh- the shoulders of the leaseholders rather than the developers or the industry in general. There's been a sort of quiet tweak to the social care policy, which means that people on lower or middle incomes will probably have to pay more of their own money on their care costs because the means tested stuff that they get from government is not going to count towards the 86k cap. So these things in other policy areas that suggest the government is all too happy to make individuals pay especially individuals who may not be able to afford as much to pay, don't bode well for whose shoulders the transition to net zero is going to fall upon. So that's something to keep an eye on. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this question is from Andy, who tells us in order to get his 
carer's allowance of £65, he can only work 15 hours a week and earn no more than £120 a week. So how much should he really care at the Tory MPs upset about losing all their extra income on top of their 80 salary plus expenses. He adds that he has to fill timesheets in to show what hours he's worked to get that extra £64 on top of the basic allowance. So why can't MPs do that for their second jobs? And will the press start asking why there are such restrictions on carers' allowance? So I think this is, this is a really good question because it touches on the arguments that MPs make uh, in defence of their second jobs and the way that they sort of draw those earnings and the reality for people who also have to sort of <laughs> go through a bureaucratic system in order to get money themselves, whether it's through the benefit system or, you know, sometimes their, their own earnings themselves. There was an interesting quote in uh, another morning email whose name I will not not deign to mention on this podcast where one, one MP said, how will they calculate what's a reasonable amount of second job work? Will we have to fill in timesheets? That quote made me laugh because it was like, what do you think sort of people are doing all the time, you know, when they're working shifts or they're... Particularly considering lots of these jobs are basically in public affairs and it's just like, guys, the average public affairs firm has to fill out exactly, time sheets exactly. in order to know how much to bill the client for the Yeah. Work. I mean, people's time is measured in that way, right? In a lot of industries, but also, as Andy has very well laid out in his claiming of carer's allowance. Um, and it got me thinking about Boris Johnson himself, who has been sort of chastised by the Standards Committee numerous times for having an over-casual attitude towards obeying the rules of the House, a pattern of behaviour and filing his financial interests late, sort of after the deadline. You can't do that if you're a benefits claimant. So you will get sanctioned if you're if you're claiming universal credit and you do something wrong like that, if you miss a deadline or you're late to a meeting or, you know, you don't go to a job interview that they've set up for you or any number of very small transgressions that, of course, happen in people's day-to-day -day lives because people's lives are not straightforward. You can't do that. You, you get your benefits docked and then your life is made really difficult. And I've spoken to so many people about that sanctions system over the years. And, you know, it's one of the most hated parts of universal credit because it just doesn't account for people's real lives. But Boris Johnson can do it. Uh, with the register for MPs' interests. And I do think that that gap between, you know, the, the, what the general public is allowed to get away with and what MPs are allowed to get away with is is an issue. And it also ties into what I think the public really hate, which is the one rule for you and another for all of us, which we've spoken about before in terms of Barnard Castle and all manner of hypocrisies. There are lots of reasons. It's a great question. You know, I'm always a great believer in our jobs and like, what people brief you privately is useful, but what they just do publicly is a, an even sort of better indicator. And I think, yeah, you're starting to see humble doing this kind of chin stroking. Ah, but maybe this is harmful for both parties. And it's like, well, one party seems really keen to change the subject and the other party seems really keen not to let go of it. So probably, no, it's not equally harmful for both parties. <laughs> probably both parties' extensive focus groups, private polling, it suggests what all of the public polling does, which is this is not a symmetrical affair. But um, Labour clearly love their one rule for them. And I think, you know, whether it's benefit sanctions or the carer's allowance or just the fact that almost everyone at some point in their life has done a job involving timesheets, right? Now, I also think particularly, and I, I may well be overgeneralizing from my own experience uh, in jobs with timesheets, seeing as they're either a pointless headache, right? I, I once worked somewhere where we had to touch in and touch out in order to get into the building and also fill out a paper timesheet about when we had come on or off shift and he's just like but you have this information <laughs> <laughs> you, you, like, 
it registers how many of us are in the building at any given time. Or, uh, yeah, a long time ago before I was a journalist, when I would do ordering of stock, off-site hours, I would have to fill out a timesheet of, um, you know, how much time this took to do it. Now, in practice, I did those on the train back from from work, right? So, I guess, well, is it is it too late for me to get in trouble for this? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so, in practice, right, sometimes if the train is delayed, I would take longer over, over it. Sometimes if you're like, wow, yeah, straight from the train to the bus, 40 minutes, this hour-long task only took me 40 minutes because actually the second you get through the door you're just like yo no i'm not doing any more no, of this <laughs> I, I i guess we can just go oh yeah everything on page two looks great but the thing is is nonetheless everyone resents the idea of, of doing time yeah. sheet because they are just this massive sort of time sink i think this opens up a whole range of government policies where you can go oh so you have to do this yeah the government makes you do this but they say that this story is angering but it is also i think quite funny because it's just like watching the leadership of a political party drive itself into a ditch and then desperately try and get out of the ditch in a series of kind of comical but also quite enraging ways. And including the latest thing, which you know, some uh, listeners may have missed, which is they've now passed a vote to get the standards committee to look into it mm. and for this all to come back to a vote at the end of January. Now, given the various pressures on the economy, given the tax rise isn't come in in April, I just think all of this. I mean, yeah, with the social care stuff, right, it also also holds that. So, you know, if you are someone who, you know, has a house worth 150, i.e. you are someone in most marginal seats on the front line of the Conservative majority, you are going to have to fill out a bunch of forms about, like, your means test and your various things should you need some form of social care. Yeah, I spoke to a Conservative MP who is a farmer, and they said, oh, God, it's like TB. Yeah, they said, you know, it doesn't matter if it's one of your cows the whole the whole herd is compromised. They said, we've got these consumptive cows wandering around the parliamentary party, and if we're not careful, the whole herd is going to end up getting culled. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, but it does sum up the problem for them, right? Then ev- on every issue, um, it, you can link it back to, well, why am I doing this care allowance? Well, why am I having to do this session? Well, why do I have to fill this out? Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. And and some of that stuff is nonsensical and a burden on people's time. The carer's allowance example is a good one. Filling in timesheets for, you know, your caring responsibilities when they're just part of your life. You know, often you will be living with the person you're caring for. Is just, you know, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But of course, people have to go through these these hurdles because the DWP is is incredibly ready to to sanction them or to or or to find find failings in what people have written and. You know, the fact that our MPs are allowed to sort of file things wrong or late and then make a huge song and dance about it if they get called out is not a good look. But I think it it comes back to what Chris Bryant was saying last time on the podcast, where he told us that he was hearing particularly from the 2019 intake of Tory MPs, who he said he said they had originally felt that they owed their political careers to Boris Johnson. Um, but now they feel that they may be owing their political demise to Boris Johnson. I thought that was a really interesting quote because this stuff does come from the top. If you've got a prime minister who, as an MP, has been at best lackadaisical about the system of registering your interest, then that sort of uh, complacency is going to filter down. And that's probably part of the thinking behind the the Owen Patterson mistake, which he has admitted was a mistake. So, you know, if you're under that kind of leadership, then 
like you say with your example of the consumptive cows it is going to it is going to spread to everyone in the party whether or not they like it You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.